I have set out for all of you guys. There's uh, the complete notes there. So this is all, all the content that I've, I've shared so far and then what I'm sharing today as well. Um, it's more extensive than the handouts I've done the past couple of times. That way you can go back if you want and get some more information or reference it in the future. Um, if you're ever thinking about this again, I thought it might be helpful. Um, I've got a couple of footnotes in there just with sources that I use. There's um, a few people that I rely on, so I wanted to give give them some credit um, in there. But, but yeah, hopefully that's helpful for you guys. We'll uh, go ahead and get started with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together tonight and to learn. I ask that you would help me as I teach, that I would speak clearly, explain things well. Lord, would we walk away tonight with a, uh, a greater understanding of the process of translation and, and how we get our English Bibles? Would we be encouraged? Would we be confident in the Bibles we have? And would we walk away praising you for your gracious act of revealing yourself to us through your word? It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so third and final session. Um, as I mentioned in my prayer, we're going to be talking about translations and translation theories. Um, this is obviously a topic that's of importance to, to all of us. It concerns us because most of us aren't going to be reading the Bible in Greek or Hebrew. We're going to be relying on a translation. Um, even for for people like me who I have the opportunity to go to, go to school and study, um, it takes years to really takes my whole life, will take my whole life for me to, to be able to really read fluently uh, as I can English or something like that. So translations are important. Um, it's how we read God's word today. And so I thought it would be beneficial to walk through that process and uh, to talk about it a little bit. Um, just a reminder at any point, if anyone has questions, especially if you've got a little bit of a smaller group tonight, feel free and raise your hand and ask. Um, don't be afraid to interrupt. And we We'll, yeah, try and, I'll try and answer that question for you, and we'll, um, I, I want to make sure everything's clear. So, first I wanted to present a case study. A lady whose son attends your church comes over to your house to discuss a problem with you. She's a very nice lady, but she's not a believer. I want to get my son a Bible for his birthday, she explains, but I don't know anything about them. I thought I could go online and get a Christian Bible, but it turns out there's a whole bunch of different Bibles. Why are there so many, and which ones are the best? How do you decide? So, uh, maybe this exact situation hasn't happened to you, but I'm sure that we all ha have realized at some point that there's a lot of different Bibles out there. Um, I'm sure if we were to, to just take a survey real quick, we would have several different translations represented by people who, you know, the, the daily Bible you use. You use an ESV, or maybe you use an NIV, or a NLT. Um, there's a bunch of different English translations out there, and so if you're looking for a new Bible, which one's the best? What translation is, is the one you want? Um, how do you decide that? And so I hope to, to answer some of those questions today. Um, I, I want to kind of dig into to why there's so many different Bibles and, and why we need different translations and then talk about what makes a good translation and which translation is best or is there a best translation? Um, and then I also want to kind of answer the question of, of how you know you can depend on another human's translation of the Bible. Like I said, you're going to be relying on a scholar, someone else to translate the Bible for you from Greek and Hebrew. How can you trust that what you have is God's word? 
So first, I thought I'd start with uh, defining translation. That's going to be the process of translating the words or text from one language into another. Uh, the language you're, you're moving into is called the receptor language, and so you might hear me use that phrase a few times. Um, and this leads us to the goal of translation. The goal of translation is to accurately convey the meaning of the original text into the receptor language. That is the language you're moving into. And so for us, it's going to be English. Um, when we talk about translation, we're mostly going to be talking about moving from Greek and Hebrew um, to English. I also wanted to, to make a point to, to say that translations um, can be the inspired word of God. I think that, that sometimes people, maybe they, they get... Um, they, they, they get this sense of hopelessness because they, oh, well, I'm never going to be able to read the, the Greek or the Hebrew, and all these people are really going to know way more than me, and they're going to be able to know God better. And um, while there's definitely benefits to, to knowing Greek and Hebrew, I, I would really, really, really want to emphasize that you can know God, and you can, um, you can read and understand His Word and what He has revealed to us clearly through other translations. And so as long as a translation moves from the Greek and Hebrew, they move the meaning of the text, of the original text, into English accurately, you have the Word of God that, that He inspired for you. And so um, that's why we have translations. That's why we want an accurate translation. Um, and so any translation that accurately conveys the meaning of the original text into English or German or French or some African language. It is going to be the Word of God. It's going to be inspired. Um, now, I will point out later, there are some translations or, or so-called translations that don't do this, and they, they do this wrongly, and that can be dangerous, but for the most part, um, any translation that is going to do this is going to be good. So um, keep that in mind as, as we talk about translations. So next, I want to talk about what makes a translation good or, or excellent. Here's four qualities. Um, the first one is accurate. The main goal of translation is to accurately reproduce the meaning. So when we're moving from Hebrew and Greek or whatever language, uh, or Hebrew and Greek to English or whatever language, the goal is to reproduce the meaning rather than the form or the original structure and, and uh, sentence order and all those things. We're, we're reproducing the meaning. And so um, we'll, we'll talk about different theories about how we do this, but almost everyone would, would agree that, that conveying the meaning is the primary focus. Next, we, we want translations to be clear. A good translation should be just as clear to modern readers as it, in English as it was to the original readers in Greek and Hebrew. So when you're reading, it should be, if the text was clear to someone who was fluent in Greek or fluent in Hebrew, it should be clear to you when you're reading in English. That's going to make a translation good. Next, you, you want a translation to be natural. It should sound like common, normal English. Uh, languages are constantly changing and growing, and we'll talk about this later. This is one of the reasons why we need new and updated translations. Um, we mentioned last session that we, we talked about the fact that the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. Uh, Koine means common. It was written in the common language of the day. And if you were an Israelite for the Old Testament, you would be able to understand that because that's the language you spoke. It wasn't um, written in some high and lofty language. And, and sometimes I think people have this idea that, oh, it's the, the Holy Bible. It should sound 
different. And um, while we should certainly have a reverence for the Word of God, the Bible was written so people could understand it. And so uh, if there's a translation that's obscuring that, we, we, don't, we don't want that. And then next, uh, audience appropriate. We want a translation to, to be appropriate for the audience it's targeting. So there's different translations that are targeting different people. So for instance, you might have a translation that's targeting children or uh, people who are non-native English speakers. They're learning English as a second or third language. And so they should have a, a vocabulary and a style that is understandable to most people. And also that would be appropriate to read out loud during church. If you're reading out loud during church, you're, you're going to have kids, you're going to have, um, you know, people who are, are young, you're going to have older people, you're going to have people in between, people with different levels of education. You want everyone to be able to understand what's being read. So any questions on what makes an accurate translation there, or a good translation? All right. Um, so moving on to translation theories, I think the, the best way to, to look at this is to, to think of it as a spectrum. And so on the far left, we're going to have translations that are, are more focused on reproducing the form of the original. Uh, they're going to be, be focused on following the, the word order and um, keeping the same amount of words and reproducing um, in the same order and stuff like that. And where, whereas on the right, we're, the farthest right is going to be translations that are focusing more on, on meaning and reproducing the meaning. And so along this line, I also want to plot uh, five points um, of, of translations and, and just to, to get you a feel for where different translations land. And then I actually have a spectrum where I have all the translations, uh, not all the translations, but several translations plotted to kind of show you how they're, they're going to fall. And um, at any given point, a translation might vary on where it would lie on the spectrum based on its location in a book or in a passage. And so we'll talk about this a little more, what it, what it means to be form-based and what it means to be meaning-based. But um, no translation is, is going to be uniform throughout. So when I end up plotting these, it's going to be the general tendencies that this translation has. Uh, does that make sense? I, I hope to kind of clarify that a little more as I walk through those different points on the, the plot there. So that first point that we had on the, on the far left um, is going to be a literal or word-for-word -word translation. And I'm going to spend some time later kind of um, trying to get rid of that word because I think that's a literal or word-for-word -word is, is really inaccurate when we're talking about translations. And I don't believe a literal or word-for-word -word translation exists. But I use it here to make a point because the only technically word-for-word -word translation is going to be what's called an interlinear Bible, and that's going to be one where you have the Greek or the Hebrew written across in its normal word order and everything, how the, the text is and the uh, manuscripts and all that, and then underneath you're going to have a tiny English definition of the word, so you could read it along and it would just be very choppy, but you could see the word order, um, and so that can be helpful, but it, it's not a translation. It, it wouldn't read well at all. It would be, be gibberish. And so um, we'll see later that there's no such thing as a, as a little translation, but I just wanted to include that to show you that as far left as you could be is something that is like an interlinear that is truly 
trying to copy each word down. Uh, next is going to be the, the, the type of translation which we call formal equivalence. Um, these types of translations are going to attempt to maintain the formal structures of the original Greek and Hebrew, and so they're, they're going to try to consistently reproduce the form, um, the, the format in which it was written, the, the specific syntax or sentence structure. Um, if you have a, uh, a participle in Greek, I don't even know what that word, mean, word means, but they're, they're going to try and use a participle in English. They're going to try and copy words the same way, um, which can be good, which we'll talk about. We'll also talk about some of the ways uh, where that doesn't work. Another aspect of this is, is by moving um, along in this formal way, they're going to try and minimize the amount of interpretation that someone is adding in the text. Translation is always interpretation. If someone says it's not, they're wrong. You're always interpreting when you're moving from one language to another. But this type of translation is going to try and minimize that so the reader will be making those interpretive decisions on their own. Next is what's going to be called a, a functional, or you'll hear dynamic equivalent translation. And so this theory is going to be prioritizing, reproducing the form, or sorry, the meaning of the original rather than the form. They're going to be, be focusing on reproducing what the text meant to the readers, even if this means losing some of the form of the original. Um, in most cases, these translations are going to try and follow the form as much as possible, but when it doesn't make sense, just because Greek and Hebrew are so different than English, when it doesn't make sense to try and copy it, they're going to change it, and they're going to be, be fine with doing that. And so ultimately, their goal, again, is going to be re reproducing meaning, which means that an additional amount of interpretation is involved, which can cause some problems if they interpret it wrongly, but for the most part, that's going to be a good thing because it's going to produce a more understandable translation. Uh, next, we have natural language translations, and um, th this category is technically an extension of the last one, but I think the distinction is important because um, these translations are going to focus so much on reproducing meaning that they see no value in, in reproducing the original form um, they, they exclusively focus on reproducing the meaning. These translations attempt to convey the meaning in a way that will evoke the same response from the readers as the originals did, and it's going to introduce even more interpretation because you're, you're going to be focusing way more on meaning rather than just finding a word that substitutes for the, the Greek or Hebrew word, um, and it's, it's really going to do this so that You'll, have a, you'll, you'll achieve a natural English style and readability, but um, this can sometimes introduce things that were not included in the original language, which can, which can be okay, but at other times can um, not be good if it's going to change the meaning. And this last one, um, is, this last group is uh, what we're gonna call contempor contemporary relevance versions and paraphrases. So, Technically speaking, a paraphrase is a rewording of the original text for the purpose of simplification in, into the same language. And so you'd have to take something that was originally English and simplify it and keep it in English for it to be a paraphrase. So um, there's people who talk about something like the message and they're like, oh, it's a paraphrase. Well, 
technically it's not a paraphrase because he was going from Greek and Hebrew, but we'll talk about some of the, the other problems with that, and um, that's why I also point out contemporary relevance versions, which is going to be something like a paraphrase in, in, the, fa- in the sense that it's, it's going to really simplify the text, um, but these are, are going to be, be totally focused on meaning and reproducing the same um, emotions and all these types of things. Uh, they're, they're going to so prioritize readability and um, having kind of modern style and language that it, it's going to essentially remove all cultural perspective from the text in order to connect to the modern reader. Um, in my opinion, I, I don't think these should be called Bibles because at any point it's difficult to tell what is the Bible, what is actually God's word in Scripture, and then what is the author's additional added commentary or um, meaning or, or where they have changed it to um, be relevant to their own culture. And so there's extreme amounts of interpretation in these versions, and thus, thus there's a real danger if the author is interpreting things wrongly. Um, in this category, I'd place the message, the New Testament in modern English, the original Living Bible, and the Passion Bible or Passion Translation, which just came out, which I'll talk about a little later. Um, and so, going back to the uh, the spectrum here, here's the five plots, and you, and you see on the farthest left we have interlinears, and then the farthest right. Number five, we have paraphrases of those contemporary rele- relevance versions. The rest are going to fall in the middle there. Um, and so, like I said, it's, it's, it's a spectrum. At any point, uh, a version is going to vary. You have times where a version that is trying to be more formal is going to end up translating something in a very dynamic way because if they didn't, it wouldn't make sense. And so I attached here at the end of your packet... Um, and then also up here, a spectrum that I made of some of the most popular translations. And so, like I said there on the very left, we have interlinear Bibles. Um, moving towards the right, we have the American Standard Version, which is a uh, very, it's a pretty old Bible. It was translated, finished in 1901. Um, it's very, very formal. You, you can barely understand it because it doesn't even read like English, um, and it's old. Um, but it, it was tried to be very, follow very closely to the Hebrew and Greek, and because it did that, it read like a weird English, Hebrew, Greek. You couldn't even tell what's going on. Um, moving farther to the right is the NASB. This is still a pretty popular translation. It's probably the most current um, translation that you can get that's modern and updated that's uh, very formal. It's going to be very strict in following the the text uh, in Hebrew or Greek and trying to reproduce that in, in the same exact way. Then we have the ESV, RSV, KJV, um, and the New King James Version, the NRSV, the Christian Standard Bible, which is where we're starting to get kind of a, a, in the median range where they're going to be um, what they actually have a term for it. They call it optimal equivalence, but where they're, they're really trying to go, if they can be formal, they're going to go formal, but if they can't, they're going to go dynamic. Um, NIV is pretty much right in the middle. Same with the Net Bible. 
Then the NLT, right by the four, is where we have starting to, to get into natural language, where um, it's going to, prior to prioritize meaning over any form from the original um, and then contemporary English version. And then there, right down on the five, we have the Living Bible and the Message, which the Living Bible is really the only true paraphrase that um, I, I know of in English. It was actually paraphrased from the ASV, the 1901 ASV, um, and then there's the message. Dan, did you have a question? Yes. Um, for each of these translations from Hebrew to um, English, do they have committees? Some That's a great question. Um, yeah, most, almost all modern translations are going to have a committee of most of them have over a hundred scholars. They'll have um, they'll have someone who's the head of the Old Testament, the head of the New Testament, and subcommittees. Um, and then they'll have s- several scholars working on a book. And then they bring the book before the committee. The whole committee goes over it. They vote on changes. They vote on all these things. And actually, I'm going to show a video a little later of um, an excerpt from the. Um, ESV translation committee just to kind of show the process of some of that. Um, but then you do, you do have some translations like, um, I can't think of any really good modern English ones. Uh, for instance, the Living Bible, though, as a paraphrase, was done by one person. And uh, the message was done by one person. And that can have some benefits, but it also does introduce some dangers because you have one person, there's not going to be any checks and balances, especially if they're bringing in certain theological concepts. Um, they can enforce that over the whole Bible without anyone to say, hey, that's not quite right. And that's um, what I think you get with the message in some areas. And actually, um, that new trans translation, which isn't a translation, um, called the Passion Bible. It was done by one person, and, it, and it's really, um, it's really bad. <laughs> but uh, it, it's so loose that the person adds so many things that aren't in the text, adds all his own interpretations, um, and calls it a translation. And the person who doesn't know any better is going to think this is God's word when really this guy has just added all this different stuff. And he comes from a, a certain theological camp that is, is very dangerous and kind of enforces his theology onto the text in all sorts of spaces. But, um, but yeah, great question. It's done by committees. Uh, they, they have a whole process. There's a lot of checks and balances. So you don't get that where you have one person really ruling over everything. So yeah, good question. Any other questions on the spectrum here and kind of where I have translations laid out? Is there any translation that you don't see up there that you're wondering where it might fall? Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a... <laughs> that is a good question, and um, and I will end up suggesting at the at the end here that that you use as many translations as you can. Um, but when I memorize, I like to memorize from one version. I usually do the ESV or the NIV. Um, but but yeah, it is hard when you've memorized a verse a certain way, and then oh, it's it's different now, um, and that is unfortunate. Um, that's a, a lot of modern translations um, because of the legacy of the King James version. Um, 
they will kind of keep some of the wording. So really well-known passages like uh, the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 or John 3.16 or um, Psalm 23. The KJV really set the standard with how this was translated and people fell in love with the verses and the, and the, the way it was written. And so the ESV will, will pretty much keep it exact. They'll just update it, take out the, the thous and the, the thines and all that. Um, but, but keep it just so you're not, you know, taking people's favorite verses. But that does happen because, um, because English changes, and uh, that is one of the, one of the results. But, but yeah, it is, you know, I, I think it's, it's good to memorize from one translation, but, um, but yeah, so no, no real advice there, but, but yeah. Any other questions on the spectrum there? All right, so I want to take a little bit of a excursus. Oh, real quick, just kidding. Uh, here's some examples of translations just to show you how different ones kind of work. First, here's an interlinear, just like I was, was describing. Um, here's Genesis 1. Again, Hebrew reads from right to left, so you kind of have to go back and forth. Um, but right under the first word, Bereshit, you have in beginning. Then the next word, the verb bara, he created, and Elohim, God. Eight is um, a direct object marker. We don't even translate it into English. So that's kind of an example that I'll, I'll get to of translating word for word. Well, there's words in Hebrew that we, we don't do the same thing with, so we never translate that, that, that fourth word from the right. You just don't. Um, so, oh, are we missing words from the Bible? No, it's just that's because the meaning doesn't change. Um, and so, so you see how how that works with each word underneath it. If you were to read it like a translation, it'd be, in beginning, he created God, the heavens, and the earth, and the earth, she was formless, and emptiness, and darkness over face of the deep. It wouldn't work, um, but you can see the word order and, and how things work a little bit, um, and there's what it would look like in, in Greek. Um, here's Romans 3.21. I, I won't read the whole thing all the time but, uh, just because it, it'll get a little long, but you can see a few different translations and, and even for the NLT there, I had to make the font a little smaller because they're adding more words to, to make it smoother and to uh, communicate it better. So with the ESV down there in verse 25, uh, you get the word propitiation. And that's a great word, it's a great theological word, but how often do you throw that around in your, uh, your everyday discussion? Most people don't. Um, I think it's a great word, I love the word, I think it's a great translation of the Greek word, but um, for most people they don't know what that means. And so the NIV, trying to be a little more on the side of meaning, says uh, a sacrifice of atonement. And then the NLT um, says a, a sacrifice for sin, to get the concept of the word which I think they do a pretty good, good job of. And, and you see some of those, those other areas where um, the NLT, the ESV in Greek, this is all like one sentence, and Paul is just building his argument. And so the ESV, in these few verses, they only have, what, like, I think three sentences uh, in, in five verses, whereas the NIV, almost each verse, they have, a di they have another another. Um, sentence, and then the NLT, every verse, they have another sentence, just because they, they want you to be able to understand it. They don't want the sentences to get too crazy long. Um, but yeah, there's just an example of, of what that would look like, and um, I have a couple more, just, I, I won't read them all just for time's sake, but um, you can get the picture. There, there's one I will read just because it's, it's kind of funny. Here is 
the NIV of Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Eugene Peterson says, generous in love, God, give grace, huge in mercy, wipe out my bad record, scrub away my guilt, soak out my sins in your laundry. Um, I don't even know <laughs> what's going on there. I don't, yeah, uh, but that's just an example of what it looks like when you go way, way, way to the left of this, and, and it's stuff like that where I'm like, oh, this is, I, I don't know if it's okay to go that far, um, and you can just see that the way that he, he summarizes these things, um, you lose all the, all the nuances of, of a formal translation and the structure, and it, it's, it's hard to know what, what is there in the text and then what was kind of his, his own thoughts. All right, here's that excursus I mentioned. Um, I want, want to kind of break down this idea of a literal translation. This is something that it's, it's really common that you, you hear this all the time. Um, oh, I, I, I prefer a literal translation, or I want a translation that's word for word. Um, and there's advertisers who, who say, oh, here's a literal Bible, or this is word for word. Um, but I... I really don't like this. I think it's really inaccurate. It's, it's not helpful for the way we're talking about translations, and um, I believe that the word literal does not literally mean what we say it means, and by using this word, we're leading to confusion as to what a literal translation is, and more importantly, what it means for a translation to be accurate. Um, so, the basic sense of the word literal has to do with meaning, not form. All English dictionaries define, define this word as primarily meaning without embellishment or free from exaggeration. And so, the emphasis with the primary way we use the word literal is in regards to meaning. You're, you're not exaggerating or you're not adding things. You're not embellishing it. You're literally saying what, I'm going to tell you what he literally said. I'm going to tell you the meaning of what he said. Um, and so, so again, a literal translation then, based on the primary way this word is used, would be a translation that is primarily faithful to the meaning of the author, not the form. Some dictionaries offer word for word or verbatim as a secondary uh, definition, but even if, we, even if we did this uh, for translation, if this is what we mean, we want a literal, we want a word-for-word -word or verbatim translation, um, none would exist. Not even an interlinear would truly qualify for this verbatim or word-for-word -word translation. Even something as simple, um, I'm, I'm going to be drawing from a scholar named Bill Mounts. He gives this example of, of this Greek phrase, tu theou, and it's two words and we translate it of God. But first of all, we, we have to change the, the case, the, the grammatical case that this was in to turn it from Greek to, to English. Then we have to take out the article because Greek uses an article when it says God. It, so you could translate it the God, but we don't, we don't say the God, we just say God. And so that's not how English works. Um, and then also you, since it's a proper name, we capitalize it. We have a, a capital G, whereas Greek didn't. And so we have to do all these things just to, to 
take these two words from Greek into English. Um, so it's, it's not helpful to say literal translation when um, really it would make no sense. So here's a, this is an example that he gives. Um, also first, if, scholars, if all scholars did was translate words, a literal translation would produce nothing but meaningless phrases. In fact, no one would even desire a literal translation in this sense because if we followed this definition, we would be reading an interlinear, not a translation. So here's an example he gives with John 3.16. This is how John 3.16 would read in a, if you want a word-for-word -word Bible. In this way, for he loved the God, the world, so that the Son, the only, he gave in order that each the believing into him, not he perish, but he has life eternal. So if, that, if that's what you want, then there you go. But, but I, I, think we, I think we can all agree that that's not what we want in a translation. That's not what, what anyone wants because it doesn't make sense. Um, it doesn't, doesn't read like English. That's not how we talk in English. And so here's what, uh, what Bill Mount says. These are the English words that literally represent the Greek words, but no one thinks this is translation. So why would someone ask for a literal translation of the Bible? Any publisher that advertises their, their Bible is a literal translation should be selling only interlinears. My point is simply this. We miscommunicate when we claim a literal translation goes word for word when in fact there's not a single verse in the Bible where they actually do. And so I, I want you to grasp this because this is something that's brought up all the time, but, but there's just no way to go from Hebrew into English word for word because they're so different. Um, or or even, even from Greek, which shares, shares some common descent English came from, from Greek in some sense, but they're so different that, that you, can't, you can't translate it literally in the sense of word for word. You can translate it literally in the sense of without embellishment and without exaggeration, though. And so that's what we'll see um, a translation is going to try and do. Um, it's also important to realize that, that words themselves don't have a literal meaning Instead, each word has what is called a semantic range. Bill Mounts illustrates this by saying that each word has a bundle of sticks, with each stick representing a different but perhaps related meaning. One of the sticks may certainly be larger than the rest, representing the core idea of the word, or what might be called the gloss or the definition. Um, so if you're learning a language, you're going to learn the gloss, the core definition of the word, but, but really, it's just one meaning among many. And so take, for example, the word key. What does key literally mean? Well, there's no literal meaning for the word key. It has no core meaning. There's no big stick in the bundle. For example, you could say, did you lose your key? Or what's the key to the puzzle? What is the key point? What key is that song in? Press the A key. He shoots best from the key. I first ate key lime pie in Key West in the Florida Keys. So there's so many uses for the word. It depends on the context of the word. And that's my next point is that words are, are translated. The, the way you translate is, is in groups, um, groups of words, because 
instead of conveying meaning really through one word, words convey meaning in groups, in sentences, in paragraphs, which are bound together by grammar understood within a particular context. Therefore, meaning requires a context larger than an individual word, and accuracy has to do with meaning, not with form. Um, a funny example that, that this scholar gives of this is when he was learning German, uh, he, he was spending some time in Germany. He had some friends who spoke German fluently, and so they would kind of force him to speak German rather than rescuing him with English. It was cold out, and so he wanted to say, I am cold. And so he figured out the word for I, which is ich. He figured out the word for M, which is bin. And then he figured out the word for cold, which is kalt. He said, ich bin kalt. And all his friends started laughing at him hysterically. They started rolling on the ground. And, and he was thinking, well, I said the right words. Why are they laughing? And when they finally uh, recovered, they, they told him that in German, you have to say, to me, it is cold, rather than I am cold. When he asked him what he had said, um, the phrase he communicated was, I am sexually frigid. Um, and uh, he, he says that by summer, he still hadn't learned his lesson, and he said, it been warm. You know, let you figure out what that means. But um, it just goes to show that, that words convey their meaning in groups and in paragraphs and in chapters and, and larger chunks. And so we have, to, we have to really be looking not at individual words to, to just copy what is an equivalent word, because if we do that, um, it's not going to be accurate. It's not going to convey meaning. Uh, we, we run into some other problems, especially when we have metaphors and idioms and trying to translate them literally or word for word. You're not going to convey meaning, and we'll talk about that a little later. Um, but, but I hope that this goes to show that there's no such thing as a literal translation or a word for word translation. And even if there was, you wouldn't want one because um, it, it wouldn't make sense. And so a true literal translation in the most common sense of the word is one that conveys the meaning of the original words into the receptor language without exaggeration or embellishment. Um, and so that's what, again, the goal of translation is to accurately convey meaning from one language to another. And that's what we should be going for, not just kind of trying to cut and paste the, the accurate gloss of a word. Any questions on that? I don't want to, I know that was a little, that was a, a lot, and I, I just wanted to kind of break down that, that myth just so, because um, like I'm, I'm on a campaign to, to get rid of the word literal when it comes to translation. So, yeah, Petra. Uh, yeah, so from, um, so, you wouldn't, you wouldn't translate something in Hebrew necessarily because if you're moving from the same language to the same language, you're, um, you're going to be paraphrasing or, or rewording. Um, but the original, we have original, the original Hebrew, and it was translated um, in Greek. We have the, the Septuagint, which I've mentioned before. That was the, the really early translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And so that was used by the early church when Greek was the common language. Uh, Hebrew was then translated into Aramaic. It was translated into Syriac. It was translated into Latin. We have a bunch of early 
translations, um, and that's something that, that we actually, uh, we, we can kind of get a sense of, of how translation worked, and we look at um, the way that the Greek translated a particular phrase, and we can see in many cases they were, they were much more focused on capturing the meaning of it rather than just reproducing what the, the Hebrew said. Um, so yeah, they, they translated the, the, they've been translating the Bible um, probably since the Hebrew Bible even began to exist. Um, the earliest translation we have is um, we know of a couple thousand years ago, and so this is, this is an old practice for sure. Yeah, Diane. Um, yeah, that's a good question, and, and some people might think that. I, I would argue throughout Scripture that, that there is meaning in the text that God has inspired um, and the human authors have intended meaning that is universal, that is timeless, that is um, without bounds, it's not limited by context. And then the way in which that meaning applies would certainly be, be bound to context. So um, the way in which you know, a, a truth of Scripture would then apply to the people of Israel might be different than the way it would apply to the, the Greeks in the early church or the Gentiles who had come in. Um, but the meaning has always stayed the same. I would argue that throughout Scripture, the, the intent of the author is the meaning. Um, and I would argue that for any work of, of, of literature, that um, the author has an intent in writing it, and the meaning is not what you want it to be. It's not what I decide the text means. The meaning is what the author intended it to be. And so with the Bible, we have, um, you know, it, it was written by, by humans, but God as well. And so we have the dual authorship, but I believe that, that the intent of God was the intent of the human author. Um, and so, so yeah, while we, while we read the Bible and we, we see culture, it is certainly written into culture, we can, we can see underneath a, a central universal meaning that um, can then be applied to us today because it's timeless, it's not, not bound in the culture. Does that make sense? Does that? I still have a problem with that because um, some people feel mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Um, yeah, let's talk about the after class, if you're okay with that, just so we can, we can stay, stay on topic here. Um, but yeah, that's a great question. Um, any other questions just on what we've, we've covered so far? All right, uh, before you take a break, I want to cover real quick why new translations are necessary and why we update translations. Uh, first and foremost, manuscript discoveries. I ta I've talked about some of this. One of the major reasons we need new translations is because we keep discovering new manuscripts, and so we want to make sure that the manuscripts, uh, the, the Bibles, the Hebrew and Greek Bibles that we're translating from are the best they can be. So, for instance, in the 1940s, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls was a massive discovery for Old Testament scholarship and has changed the way we translate some things. And so any translation really before the 80s or 90s when a lot of the findings were released um, is going to be missing out on some of those, those finds. And so as we keep finding new stuff, it's one reason why we need new, new translations. Um, another, another reason is growing knowledge of Hebrew and Greek. 
there's, uh, there's examples in, for instance, the King James Version, which was translated in 1611, where they didn't know what a Hebrew word meant, and so they just uh, transliterated it. They just copied the kind of equivalent sound of the word into English because they didn't know what the word meant. Um, and now we have much better knowledge of these languages and we can go back and find some of those things and, and keep growing in what we, we understand words to have mean, mean ha, what their meaning is and then how they were used. Um, so that's another reason. Another major reason, reason I've, I've mentioned is the English language is constantly changing. So this means that new translations are, are necessary as English evolves, and um, again, the, the KJV, for example, if you read the King James Version from 400 years ago, English is so different now than it was then, and, and that's one reason why we need tra new translations, and that's one reason um, that I would say, you know, I, I wouldn't suggest using the KJV just because it's, it's so different. Um, it's, it's not modern English, and there's another bunch of other reasons, but um, but yeah, this is, is why we need, need new translations. I'll, I'll talk about a little bit later just uh, some of the, the gender issues in translation and the way that English language has changed in that sense. Uh, lastly, different reading levels. You have people who are in all different places. You, you have children who want to read Bibles. You have people who are learning English as, a, as, a, as another language. Um, you have adults. You have you have scholars, so we need different translations for different types of people. All right, oh, and different uses, um, kind of same thing. There's a bunch of different uses for the Bible, whether you're uh, studying, you're, you're really digging into the, the text, or you're just reading it um, lightly, you're trying to get through a bunch of reading, or you're reading it in front of church. Um, there, there's a lot of different times where you would need kind of a, a different Bible to suit that purpose. So, um, so yeah, that's where I'm going to cut it off for now. We'll take about a five-minute break. Um, yeah, you got a question real quick? Go ahead. So, just real quick, what would you recommend saying to, um, or what would you recommend that we would, we would say using the Bible? Um, That's a good question. Yeah, well, there's a lot of things you, you could say. Um, I feel like a lot of it would probably go in one ear and not the other with some of these people. Um, but, but from, from a, if this person was actually willing to have a conversation with me, I, I'd want to, to explain, um, for instance, the, the King James Version was a great translation 400 years ago. Um, but for some of these reasons, we have such better knowledge of Hebrew and Greek that we can more accurately translate it. Uh, English has changed so much that we can now translate it into a way that is understandable. The manuscripts that were being used to translate from for the, the King James ver Version, they weren't just irredeemably corrupt, but um, they were older, and there was some significant differences than the earlier manuscripts we now have. We have, we have thousands more manuscripts than, than we, we had back then. And so uh, for some of those reasons, I, I would say, you know, give me, you know, I would tell them, give me one practical reason why you would still use this, and um, I think part of, part of these people, even, you know, if it's not a, a Mormon or a, you know, Jehovah's Witness who has some other vested interest in why they would want to keep this, um, there are, are confessing Christians who um, 
only use the King James. Um, there's kind of a spectrum of people who they just prefer this, this is what they grew up with, and there's people who think all other versions are corrupt, you have to use the King James. Um, and you know, that's just um, crazy and wrong, but um, I, I, I think part of it is, is kind of the, the human resistance to change. We don't, we don't like change, and, and sometimes our identity is, is caught up in certain things, and for Christians, it's what Bible translation you use. And so I think there's resistance to change a lot of times, um, and it's unfortunate, but, but yeah, I, I really can't think of any good reason why you would use the King James Version as your daily Bible, as the Bible you're going to preach from, the Bible you're going to teach from, the Bible you're going to read um, to your kids or, or read for the congregation. Um, praise God for that translation and the way it revolutionized the English language and English Bibles and the legacy it set, but um, I think it's time has passed. Um, yeah, any other, any other questions? All right, we'll take a, take a quick break, and then we'll come back and, and move on to more about translations. All right, so I'm actually going to play that video I mentioned. Uh, let's see. So this is a super interesting video, just a few minutes long. Um, but like I said, it's some Bible translators from the ESV committee, and they're, they're actually talking about how to translate some Hebrew words um, that would usually be translated as slave, and benefits to translating it as slave and cons, and so super interesting. They, they debated this for hours, I'm sure, possibly days. This is just a super condensed version of it, um, but yeah. All right, so yeah, just a quick video, but I think it's, it's helpful for seeing some of the background that goes into this process of, of translation. And um, this actually was not the original kind of translator, so the, the text had already been translated, and this was them going back and editing things and correcting, and so you had a much smaller group of people. Um, but yeah, is there any questions on that? Just see a little bit behind the scenes of um, some of that stuff. It's, it's a hard decision for, for that word. Um, I've had to kind of think about this too as I, as I translate. Um, what, what decision would I make? And um, it, it's hard. I think the, the guy in the red, red shirt, his name's Wayne Grudem, made a, made a really good point that, that for most English speakers, that term just has irredeemable negative Part, things, con connotations to it that, that you just, I, I, I hear slave and I think oh, the, the hundreds of years of, of oppression of African Americans um, and that's not what we should be bringing to the text but unfortunately it's what we do and so might not be best to translate it that way. Yeah, Kai? So what kind of words Yeah, um, yeah, of course, you, you have, have words um, like slave that are going to be translated, that you're going to have to think about that. Um, even, even things like, even simple things that, you know, you have to figure out how to, how to translate the word, word city. Well, when we think of a city, that is a different understanding of, you know, the, the word city back then. And so, for some, for some instances, uh, the, like the NASB, 
New American Standard, very formal translation, they translate this one Greek word as city every time it's used. Um, when really, when it's calling uh, Nazareth a city, it's not more than, you know, a, a bump in the road as, as you're going down the road. It's just a tiny little village. And so are we bringing something inaccurate to the table when we see the word city? Um, there's a lot of things that, that you have to think about, and, and that's a good question. I'd have to, have to really think and see, like, what, what other words might you be, be bringing to the, might be bringing wrong, um, wrong connotations to as a, as a 21st century American. But, yeah, good question. Any, anything else? I was going to say, I think that's so cool to get to see that, to, like, towards Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and those are the guys who are, are translating your Bibles. Yeah, I, I love that they end that way, and um, I, I think it's you know I, I we're going to start moving into um, we're going to talk about pros of each theory and cons of each theory, and then some difficulties in translation. But um, but I think that. Uh, what I want you guys to walk away from as we talk about some of the difficulties and different things is that we have so many translations and, and we can trust these scholars who are doing this and um, that they, they love God and they're, they're doing this and, and want to accurately convey the meaning. And so, um, so yeah, it's an it's encouraging thing to watch. Maddie? Uh, are women like not allowed to do that? Like that's, a, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, just in the, in the world of biblical studies, you have uh, a lot, lot less women um, doing it. Um, I was actually checking out a, a new translation, the Christian Standard Bible, the other day, and I was looking through the translators, and um, one of the head translators was a woman. So, um, so yeah, it, again, that was the... Um, that was the, the, the head oversight committee where it's just, you know, a, a couple dozen and a half, two dozen people who are making the final decisions. I'm sure um, in the translation there, you know, they have all types of people. But yeah, just in biblical studies, there's a lot less women. Um, but, but yeah, I think there were definitely women involved in it for sure. Anything else? All right, so... Um, I already went through that slide. Pros of each theory. I just want to walk through uh, some of the different different things that, that we see, and as we have these different translations, um, the literal or word for word, even though I don't like that 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 term, um, interlinears, they're helpful for viewing the structure and the word order of the original language when studying a passage or translating. But that's about it, as we will see. Um, a formal equivalence translation. Uh, this translation is less interpretive, of, as I've mentioned, and so it can be helpful because the reader is going to be less likely to encounter an interpretation that they don't agree with. Or uh, if you're studying really carefully for the advanced student, it can be helpful because you're going to be forced to make interpretive decisions yourself. Uh, it can also be helpful for preaching or teaching from, since there's uh, less need to maybe correct or to say, yeah, a better way to translate it is this, or uh, you, don't, you can explain on your own rather than having the, it explain it for you, if that makes sense. Um, and then also, readers will be able to pick up word patterns easily, e more easily, easily, because this approach is, is going to try and translate the same Greek and Hebrew words with the same English words. Um, a, a, a huge 
huge thing, especially in, um, well, really in, in all of the Bible, is tracking repeated words. You, you have words that are repeated throughout the entire Bible and then also in an author's work. Um, it's a great way to track with the author's main themes and purpose and the, the main idea he's trying to convey. You're going to see it in, in that. Um, so formal translations are going to do that a little better because they're going to translate words the same. Um, we'll talk about the negatives about that in a little bit, but, um, but yeah, that's, that can be a plus. And also, um, it's going to allow you to better follow the argument in an epistle. I, I showed you a text from Romans earlier um, because it's going to keep things in one sentence, even though it might be a little harder to read, but it's not going to start new sentences. It's going to allow you to follow the argument more, and so um, it's going to translate logical connectives like therefore or but or for you're going to see all the time if you're reading the ESV or the NASV in, in Paul's letters therefore or uh, nevertheless or but or for this reason and they're always going to translate those so you see that and that can be helpful in following the argument um, and also when you're translating um, you have kind of the, the main clause if you're familiar with the grammar the, the main verb and the main the main subject the subject, and then you have uh, subordinate clauses, and they're going to keep those things subordinate so you see what the author is emphasizing, whereas in a, in a more dynamic translation, they're just going to start a new sentence, and so it's going to change a little bit. Um, though the meaning is not going to change necessarily, you might, the, the focus might change a tiny bit. Um, so with, with a functional or dynamic equivalent translation, uh, the, the main benefit is going to be with the, the clarity you're going to get. When it's done correctly, it's going to be more accurate because it's going to convey the meaning better. And this is going to produce a more understandable translation, which is, in fact, the purpose of translation, as we've said. Um, creates a readable Bible that's going to be understandable by people of different ages and, and backgrounds. Um, it's not going to require a, a scholar or a pastor to explain because you can um, do it on your own in most circumstances. And also, these translations may be more clear because it's not going to, to follow the structure as much. And so, in a translation that's following the structure, it might be confusing because you have English that is reading more like Greek or Hebrew structure rather than English structure. And so this is going to be, be more, um, more clear than, than some of those other ones. Moving on to natural language, this is going to have the same benefits as the, the last one. Um, however, they're even easier to understand. By using natural English, those, uh, these translations are, are understandable by, by really anyone, and even those who are not educated in, in Biblish or Christianese, as some might say. So think about words that we use as Christians like, um, like repent or um, atonement or um, just, just word, sin or, or something, just words that, that we use that you don't hear non-Christians using. Um, Something like the NLT is going to explain those words, or propitiation, like we said earlier. Uh, it's going to explain those words and, and substitute words so that anyone can understand it, whether you're a non-Christian um, or you're a new believer who's unchurched. Lastly, paraphrases, contemporary relevance versions. 
these publications are, are going to be very helpful for providing simple summaries or explanations of the text to those who don't understand, such as children or, or new believers. Um, uh, several of these paraphrases or contemporary relevance versions came out of um, a father who was trying to explain the, the Bible to their children, and they were trying to read it, and they realized, ah, oh, they can't understand this King James Version, or they can't understand um, the, this American Standard Version, so I'm going to really simply write it out, and then oh, I'll, I can just publish it, because maybe other people have that that same same problem. So um, it's going to be helpful in that sense. And when rightly interpreted, these books offer the meaning of the text super clearly. Um, by sacrificing historical accuracy, the, the text becomes very culturally relevant. Any questions on the pros of any of those translations, translation theories? All right, moving on to the cons. Uh, Interlinears are going to make no sense at all if read like an actual translation, and they're not going to convey meaning as well or at all. Then with formal equivalence translations, uh, they're, they're following the original structure and form as much as they can, so sometimes it might be ambiguous or it might be, um, be confusing because it's not reading like natural English. And sometimes they, they're going to put so much emphasis on the gloss of one word that it can be um, misleading in a case like uh, I mentioned the NASB where they're translating this word as city every time. Well, Nazareth, Na Nazareth wasn't a city in the same sense that Rome was a city. And so you're translating that word the same way every time. Um, it, it's going to be a little bit confusing at some, some points. Also, by sticking to a more formal rendering into English, they can often read woodenly or uh, so just herky-jerky that you, you don't even understand what's, what's being said because it doesn't read like English. And so it can be super hard to, to follow for long periods of time. Like um, in, in narratives, uh, I read scripture occasionally um, before the passage is, is preached on. And, and there's been times where, whether we're in Exodus or in John, and um, I'm reading out of the ESV and I read it beforehand and I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I don't want to read this in front of the congregation just because I don't even know what it's saying. Um, I'd rather read the NIV just so it makes sense, but um, that's not all the time. It's just especially in some Old Testament narrative, uh, you run into that, that problem. And then as we saw earlier, there, there's no such thing as a literal or word-for-word -word translation. And because it's advertised that way, it can be misleading sometimes. Moving on to functional or dynamic translations, uh, because they're focused more on meaning, they require more interpretation, which can be good when they get it right, but it can introduce pollution to the text when they get it wrong, and this is why it's important that there are footnotes with alternate readings. Uh, often they lose the benefits of a formal translation, such as the ability to follow repeated words or the logic of an argument. Um, not always, but, but sometimes they do. And then they, they also, sometimes because they're in a mediating category, when they do lean more formal, they, they still might be confusing to uh, an uneducated, you know, non-Christian or something. Um, they might still use, use bigger words, theological words that someone doesn't know. Um, so that could be a con. Uh, natural languages, natural language versions. They're going to completely abandon the original form, and, and thus they lose all benefits of a formal translation. Um, 
they, they require more interpretation even than the last category. And so this can be dangerous when you're introducing ideas that aren't included in the Greek or Hebrew, when you're trying to make sense in English. And it, if you introduce something that changes the meaning, you don't want to do that. But that's a, a greater, it's easier to do that when with these types of uh, translations. And sometimes you, they, they read so naturally, which is a good thing, but they, they do it so well that you can't tell that um, you're reading a book that is ancient, even though the Bible is God's word for us today, and, and it's for us, it was written for us. Um, the Bible was a, was a book writ, uh, written in history, it's rooted in history, and so um, you should probably be able to tell that it's 2,000 years old, at least, um, when, you're, when you're reading it, and sometimes you lose that. Then cons for paraphrases and contemporary relevance versions. These books are, are, are going to have the same negatives as the last group, but even, even more so. And they're gonna be introducing so much interpretation at points that it can be dangerous, especially, as I mentioned, if um, you have one, one translator who has a certain theological bias and they're going to introduce that into the entire text. Um, and, and again, it's sometimes really hard to tell when you're reading text that is being translated and when you're reading stuff that is being added to make it sound smoother or to make it more understandable. So um, again, I, I don't think these should be considered Bibles. They can be helpful. They have their place. But I wouldn't recommend that, that this is someone's you know, study Bible or their daily reading Bible or that you, you preach from it or read scripture for the congregation uh, from it. Any questions on pros and cons of, of translation theories? All right, um, so I, I wanted to quickly mention some difficulties in translations just, just to, um, for, for letting you guys know. Um, but, but ultimately, I, I want these to provide us with more confidence in our translations because we can be assured that ultimately these translators are, are making choices in order to most accurately convey the meaning of the original text to us English readers. Um, this is a good thing that we have, you know, difficult conversations over, should we translate this as slave or servant? Because we're, the translators are going to try and, and do this in a way that we're going to get the meaning that is inspired, that is God's word. Um, so some of the, the primary challenges that we run into are, are with different Things like idioms, so an idiom is a group of, of words or a phrase where the message of individual words do not add up to the meaning of the phrase. So, um, that's a mouthful, but, but modern English is full of idioms. So like break a leg. Well, when I say break a leg, I don't, necess I don't mean, okay, break a leg, um, I mean good luck. Or if I say something is a piece of cake, I'm, I'm saying it's an easy task. Um, that's, that's an idiom in, in English. And so Greek and Hebrew have these. A good example in Hebrew is, uh, this, is a, this is a fun one. Um, in Exodus 34, 6, God is described as having an Eric Apayim, which if I was to translate it word for word would be a long nose. So God has a long nose. Wow. You learn something new every day. Um, that's not what, what the phrase means because this was just a Hebrew idiom that, that is conveying this concept of, of God being slow to anger. So if you think about when someone gets angry and they, they flare their nostrils and scrunch their face, your nose, 
um, gets, gets shorter. And so God, they're saying, has a long nose. It takes a long time for his nose to, to scrunch up. Um, this is just a fantastic Hebrew way of conveying this, this thought. If I was to, to leave this in English, though, if I was to translate in English, um, God has a long nose, people are going to be like, what the heck? Like, th this doesn't make any sense. Um, and, and so that, this is one of those cases where we have to be wary of these things. And, and same with metaphors and similes. Um, for instance, th this, this gets even more difficult when you have a, a metaphor that is theologically significant, like Jesus is the Lamb of God. Well, what if you're translating for a group of people who they, they don't have sheep anywhere around? They've never seen a sheep. Um, the culturally equivalent animal is a pig. Do you say Jesus is the swine of God? That probably makes you cringe because you, you, you know just how, how big of a theme the lamb is throughout scripture and, and the sacrifices and the concept of holiness and atonement. Um, so then you have to make the decision, well, do we just say lamb of God and then educate these people? Um, it's a hard, hard decision, and, and you run into that when, when you have these metaphors that, um, that don't mean the same thing. And, and this is why if I was to translate things word for word always, you would lose the meaning, and it wouldn't convey any meaning. So we need to be translating what the meaning of the word is. Uh, the same thing goes for, for euphemisms um, or, or, or just different things where um, if I was to translate it word for word, excuse me, word for word, um, it wouldn't make sense. So those are some of the issues you run into when you have uh, translations. And, and same, with, same with money we, and measurements. We use different measurements than they did back in the day, obviously. And so should I translate, oh, there's 16 almas of wheat, or should I, and then have a footnote that says, oh, this is equivalent to however many ounces. Or should I put in the text, oh, we have so-and-so ounces of wheat, and then a footnote with, in Hebrew, it's almas. Uh, this is just a, a question that you run into, and so these are things that we think about when we translate. Um, this is, this is a, a big thing, especially today. It's a, a topic of a lot of um, d debate, and, and sometimes people get angry about it. Um, gender in translation. So English has changed, as I've mentioned. You used to be able to use the word uh, man or he or him to refer to a person in general. So I could say, blessed is the man who does not walk in the, in the way of the wicked, and, and people would, would read that and understand, oh, it's just talking about a person in general. Well, English has changed, and so now people hear man, and they just think of a, a, a person of the, the male gender. Um, when when, when that's not what was trying to be conveyed. So we have to kind of update the way that we do things. Um, Hebrew and Greek function in that same way where you can use the word ish in Hebrew to refer to a man, or you can use it to refer to a person in general. And same thing in Greek with, with a couple of Greek words. And so when we translate, we have to, to figure out, do we translate it? as man or he or him, or do I translate it as something like uh, the person or the one? Um, and do you lose anything in meaning? Uh, there, there's some people who are pushing that we do this so that we, we 
we adapt to the way English is being spoken, and then there's people who say, you know, this is, this is a liberal agenda, this is trying to be politically correct, this is the feminists who are, who are doing this. Um, and, and so the reality is English has changed. Many people do not hear man or he generically, and thus if we leave these words, we're gonna be, we're gonna be confusing people. They're not gonna be hearing the message of the Bible. And so uh, I think that it's important to have a translation that is, that is gender accurate. And so when the original author was referring to men in specific, men in specific masculine terminology is used. When the author was referring to both men and women, inclusive language is used. This concept is in fact biblical. There's times when a New Testament author quotes the, the Hebrew Bible in a gender-inclusive way. So there's times, for instance, in Romans 5.15, Paul quotes Isaiah 52.7, which um, says something along the lines of, um, it, it just talks about a person in general by saying the man. Well, Paul translates it into Greek using a, a plural word, says um, those. And so we have, even in the Bible, people doing this where they're just conveying the meaning because the meaning isn't changing. They're just making it understandable. Um, what this does not mean is that a translation should seek to neutralize or remove all gender-specific references. That would be wrong. Um, there's people who think we shouldn't even call God he or you shouldn't even call anyone he or her. You should just call them uh, person or whatever. Um, and I don't think that's right uh, at all. I would have a major problem with that. Um, it, it's a complicated subject because we have differences in Greek and Hebrew. Greek and Hebrew have gendered nouns, and so you can have a noun that is masculine and a noun that is feminine, but that doesn't necessarily correspond to actual biological gender. For instance, the, the plural Hebrew, uh, of the Hebrew for fathers is actually a feminine form, but obviously fathers aren't feminine. Um, and so then trying to change this into English, you run into all sorts of problems, um, and, and this is something we have to, to deal with. Um, one danger, though, is, is that you can take a, a, a single word, like man, and then if you try and turn it into a plural word, like those or them, um, it could change the original meaning if the meaning was very focused on the individual, but it's just something we have to figure out. Uh, do we dispense with, with that for, for trying to be accurate in our translation? Um, but, but I think that's, it's not that big of a deal, and for the most part, there's ways to work around it. Um, but yeah, one special problem you have, though, is in regards to texts that are about Jesus. So um, I believe Psalm 8, is about Christ, not only based on the context of the Psalms, but based off its quotation in Hebrews 2 and 1 Corinthians 15, it's quoted as being messianic. And so here, Psalm 8, um, 4 through 6 in the ESV says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Um, like I said, 1 Corinthians 15 and Hebrews 2 quote these as about Christ. Christ is the one who God has made a little lower than the heavenly beings, but then has crowned him with glory and honor. He has given him dominion over the work of his hands, has put all things under his feet. Well, 
The new NIV translates this as, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and have crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. So obviously that changes the meaning a little bit. Um, and, and that's a case where, where in this, this attempt to be gender accurate, you do take away from the original intent. If this is supposed to be about Jesus, now you might lose that. Um, so it doesn't happen all the time. This is just one case where I think it's been butchered, unfortunately. Um, so if you read in an IV, note Psalm 8. Um, uh, yeah, Peter. Yes, that if yes, yeah. If you if you have a NIV before 2011, they they have something more like the ESV, but they have updated it and changed it, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that's a problem you run into, and it's 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 hard because English has changed, and and myself as as a man, I can I can read something, and and whether or not I take it generically, I, I still know it's talking about me because I'm a man. But, um, you know, I, I, this guy, Bill Mounts, I talked about earlier, he shared a story of, um, you know, walking into his daughter's room and she had taped a Bible verse on her over her bed and had crossed out him and wrote her because she's like, well, dad, isn't the Bible for, for me, not just my brother? Um, and that's, you know, something that, yeah, the Bible is for her. And, and we, we don't want people to, to think the Bible is not for them because we're not conforming to the way English is spoken. Um, and so, so I have this quote um, by Andy Nicelli, he's a, he's a New Testament scholar. He says, if you're going to offend non-Christians, offend them only with what the Bible teaches, not how you translate it. This is not about being politically correct or embracing a radical feminist agenda. It's about communicating accurately and clearly. Um, and I think that's great. Uh, I think when we translate, we should try and be accurate. And that means speaking English the way it's now spoken. Um, unfortunately, we, do, we have to find ways to work around um, things like, like we have in, in Psalm 8. Like, how, how would I translate that? Um, I might translate it like the ESV and then have a footnote that says, see these passages that, that obviously show this is about Jesus. Or um, you could say, what, uh, what is a person that you're mindful of, of him? Um, you're still using, I guess, him generically, but um, you, you have made, made that. I, it's, it's hard. You see, you see it's difficult, um, but uh, I, I do think it's important to, to think about that, and um, yeah, English is changing, and, and maybe someday we'll go back. I don't know, but, um, but it's just something that has to be thought about in translation. Um, any questions about that? I know it's, it's a lot to, to think about. All right, uh, so almost done here. I have some suggestions about what to do instead of bickering over translations. Like I said, this is a, a point of, of contention for some people. Regular bene regularly benefit from the strength of multiple translations. All translations have their strength and their weaknesses. By using multiple translations, we can get the best of all worlds. Two, thank God for good Bible translators and translations. Bible translation is extremely difficult, as we've seen. In English, we are so blessed to have such a wide variety of translations, um, and we ha have all these different things at our hands, and with phones, we can access them for free. Crazy. Um, and, and for millions of people throughout the world, they don't have this luxury. 
They only have one Bible, or, or they don't have a Bible at all. And so that's why we need people to go and um, to, to evangelize and, and to translate Bibles for them. And so, um, you know, it's, you know, I wonder sometimes, we spend all this time bickering over translations and arguing when, when there's millions of people who don't even have a Bible, and that's something we should really think about before, you know, we, we're so quick to judge someone based on the Bible they're using. Three, be careful when you criticize a translation. Um, again, it's so difficult. It's such a process that, that we need to be careful when, when we talk about this, especially when it's done by, by dozens of scholars who know, know so much more than, than us. And um, if you know no Hebrew or Greek, and, and uh, you, you can't even imagine what the process is like. Um, I saw a funny cartoon once of, uh, of someone who was like, um, 90 scholars with 11 PhDs a, PhDs a piece spent 25 years translating this passage, but today I'm going to tell you what it really means. Um, sometimes that's what it's like for, for us who, who criticize a translation. Um, we, we saw all those scholars. They, they've been doing this for decades, and they, they disagree on these things. They, they have challenges. Um, we should trust them. They, they love God, and they want, want us to, to have his word. So think before you, you criticize. Two, recognize, or not, not two, four, <laughs> recognize how similar English translations are. They're all going to be, be trying to convey the meaning of the original into the, the English language. There, there's so many things in common. Often we, we, you know, we focus on things that are, are different, but a lot of times there, there's so many things in common that, that we should focus on those. And then five, understand that different people have different opinions. This is not a topic of salvation importance. Um, you're not going to hell because you use an NLT and someone else uses an ESV. Have respectful discussion. Learn from those who disagree. Realize that though important, this issue should not separate Christians. Um, you know, I like to poke fun at my friend who, who only uses his NASB, but, um, but it's a good translation, and, and I believe he has the word of God. You know, sometimes you hear people talk about the NIV. It's the non-inspired version or uh, the ESV is the elect standard version. Um, so all these translations are good. We can trust them. Um, you know, don't, don't get too, too divisive over this. Don't be divisive at all, actually. All right, uh, I wanted to quickly suggest some translations. These are, um, again, there, there's so many out there. These are, are ones that are, that are solid, reliable, evangelical uh, English translations out there. Um, they're in order, not from best to worst, but in order of most formal, most form-based to most functional or meaning-based. So the New American Standard Version, um, English Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, uh, it's not technically an evangelical one, um, but still a, still a pretty good translation. The Christian Standard Bible just came out last year. It's a revision of the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It's a really good translation. The NIV the New English Translation. Uh, this one, I want to point out in particular, um, not that it's a greater translation than any one of them, but uh, it's the New English Translation, Net, Net Bible. It's also free online. That was one of their goals. Uh, there's like 62,000 footnotes in this thing, and most of the footnotes are, uh, some of them are like study notes, but most of them are going to have to do with translation. And so it's a more dynamic translation, and then it'll show in a footnote 
how you would formally translate it, maybe what the Hebrew idiom was or what the Hebrew structure originally was. Um, if there's discrepancies over, over the text and uh, maybe there's different variants in different manuscripts, it'll talk about that in the footnotes and it'll talk about why um, they chose a certain one. It's, it's a great resource. You don't have to get it in print because it's super thick. Just go to, uh, just type in Net Bible and it'll come up. They, they actually created this with missionaries in mind who are translating the Bible um, and they don't, you know, have, they can't get all these resources and, and have the time to make all these decisions on um, text cri criticism. And so they, just, they created this so they could access it for free and make some of these decisions. Um, it's a great resource. Uh, the New Living Translation, uh, another one that's, that's great. So these are, these are good translations. Uh, I suggest them all. I suggest that, that you use, um, use them. Um, when you're studying, especially, it can be really helpful to use multiple translations. It's one of the first things I do when I, when I am studying to teach a passage. I, I read through it in multiple uh, translations to see um, how it's formally translated, someone who's trying to convey the meaning, so they get different views on it. Um, and by using different translations, one of the things that's important is that you, you can see where they agree on the meaning. Um, and, and when you have a, a, a wide variety of translations that agree on the meaning of a text, uh, you can be sure that there's been no pollution that's entered from these translators who are translating from Greek and Hebrew into English. If the ESV, the NIV, the NLT all have the same general meaning, even though it's worded differently, you can know that, oh, well, the meaning of the text is the same, it's just worded a little differently. And so whether or not, again, you have physical copies of these, they're free online. You can go to something like, like Bible.org or Bible Hub or um, Blue Letter Bible or uh, the Bible app just on the App Store has like every translation and they're free. It's a great resource. Um, it's such a luxury, again, for us to have as Americans. Uh, and just as a conclusion, I, I want to say again that, that you can be confident that you're reading the Word of God, whether you're holding an ESV or an NLT or a CSB or an NIV, you have the Word of God in your hands. It's inspired. It's authoritative over your life because this is God's Word. And so, um, again, it's the meaning that is inspired, and when, when authors, con uh, when translators convey the meaning of the author, you're, you're going to have what God intended, and so you can walk away, you know, trusting that, that you have the original, and so as long as a translation accurately conveys the meaning of the original without adding or subtracting to that meaning, you have a good translation. By comparing them, again, you can see the consensus of meaning. You can be sure that you have the correct one in your Bible. All right, so a little recap. Um, hopefully, after all this, you're able to um, kind of know some of the different translation theories and, and what the main goal of translation is, that, that we're translating the meaning of the text, some of the qualities that make a translation good. Um, hopefully, you, you know some of the challenges that come into play while translating the Bible you can understand why there's so many different translations and why we're constantly needing new translations. And uh, lastly, why you can depend on our modern translations. Most importantly, I, I hope that all of this information has encouraged you, it's given you confidence, and that you can walk away worshiping God for 
the fact that, that we have these translations, that we, we can read his word, um, that we have it so accessibly, and that he's graciously provided us with his word for us today. Um, so that's all I have. Uh, this wraps up our time together. I, I've been so so privileged to um, be able to teach you guys. Thank you for, for bearing with me. Um, do you, do, does anyone have any questions on anything we've talked about today or anything we've talked about over the past few weeks? I wanted to, to make sure we've gone a little over time, but I want to make sure that if you have a question, you can talk to me after, but if you want to ask it now, you can. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Yes, go for it, Joel. I do, um, and so I'll, e I'll send it out um, uh, in an email this week uh, to everyone so you can download it and, and keep it for, uh, for future reference on your computer. Yeah, I will do that. Anything else? All right, well, thank you again for coming. I've really, really enjoyed this, and um, I think that we, we might be trying to, to do some more things like this, whether throughout the summer or into the fall, so you'll uh, be updated in announcements. Um, Gary and I are trying to put so, together some different things with, with Sherry and, um, and Andrew to, to have some more opportunities like this. Thank you again. Hope you all have a, have a great evening.